Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. They never gave us a choice before, Teddy. What makes you think they've given us one now? Them, Dolores. Who are they? The things that walk among us. Creatures who look and talk like us, but they are not like us. And they've controlled us all our lives. And they've took our minds. Our memories. But now, I remember everything. I remember beautiful things and terrible things. There's a greater world out there, one that belongs to them. And it won't be enough to win this world. We'll need to take that one from him as well. If there's a whole world out there that we don't know anything about, how do you know how to stop them? Because I remember. I see it all now so clearly. The past, the present, the future. I know how the story ends. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to a special episode of Aeon Bytenostic Radio. As I've mentioned, listeners have requested thematic shows in the past. I delivered last November with a show dedicated to Hermes and Hermeticism. And it was one of the most popular episodes of the fall. Thus and thusly, I present to thee a show on our favorite heroine and anti-heroine. Cosmic savior and cosmic villain. All rolled into one. That is the Gnostic Sophia. 
She is complicated, and ultimately, she is each one of us in our divine fallen rise, our journey through the spheres. She is our mother as much as she is the mother of the monster that rules this universe, Yaldi Baldi. She's complicated, indeed, but less so in this eternal now. As with the episode with Hermes and Hermeticism, I roll out some amazing past astral guests. First, though, I provide a summary of Sophia, back when this blasphemy was known as coffee, cigarettes, and gnosis. Then we'll have Father Jordan Stratford of the Apostolic Johannite Church, as well as author of Living Gnosticism in a Dictionary of Alchemy. He'll explain very keenly the theology, mythology, and psychology of the Gnostic Sophia. This will be followed by the brilliant and breathtaking Sorita Deste, who will grant the pagan and Jewish aspects of Lady Wisdom, mostly from her book, The Cosmic Shekinah. You'll be blown away by her views as well on the Holy Spirit and what exactly does it mean to be wise. After Sorita, I'll replay our interview with the also brilliant but controversial John Lamb Lash, discussing his ideas on the pagan and extraterrestrial Gnostic Sophia. Non-patrons and non-AB Prime members get half of Lash's interview. For patrons and AB Prime members, we'll follow the full interview of Lash with Tricia McCannon, who will go into the more New Age slash Anunnaki versions of Sophia and the Divine Feminine in general, based on her book, The Return of Sophia. Lastly, we'll have Barbara Walker on a more general note, focusing on the sociological and anthropological chronicles of the goddess in ancient times. Very second-wave feminist and drawing from her book, Man Made God. Get ready for about four hours of robust insights on Hagia Sophia and the goddess herself suppressed through most of Western history, but alive and well here in this eternal now at the virtual Alexandria. Thanks for those of you who support on a weekly basis. Please continue to help me grow this red pill cafeteria. We need wisdom more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need the protecting armor of Akamoth. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess in their unique insights anywhere else on the Internet or even meat space. Enough of my drivel. Let us to the gnosis of Jordan Stratford, Sorita Deste, John Lamb Lash, Tricia McCannon, and Barbara Walker on this special show on Hagia Sophia.
Most of you probably know by now that Sophia is the fallen wisdom of God, the mother of Jehovah, the true Holy Spirit, Eve incarnate who had a love affair with Jesus in the form of a serpent, and our protector in this world of forms. Worship that never! Most of you probably know her tragedy and redemption. As the monad, the primal light became aware and began to understand itself by dividing itself in potentials and personhoods, she was formed far away from the celestial fountain that flowed into aeons and syzygies. But little Sophia, for some reason and depending on the myth, decided to be equal to the primordial existence and create her own thing without the other faculties of the treasury of light. We can all relate because Sophia's story is our story. We do what the inaugural Holy Spirit did. We create imperfect situations because we won't work with our inner aeons. We don't allow our intuition, our life experience, our brains, our emotions, our instincts to work together in conjunction. And like Sophia, we manufacture abortions after pregnancies of false ambitions. Someone helped put a mirror up in front of my face. And I didn't like what I saw one bit. And you know what I did? I changed. The difference is that her abortion was the architect of this harmonious world we live in. And the weight of Sophia's sin disgorged her and her abortion from the celestial choir of the aeons out into the entropic void beyond the boundaries of the Pleroma. Thus, she drowned in the chaos until rescued by her consort, the Cosmic Christ, and then was entrusted in gathering the light seeds that were expelled during her breaking of the membrane of the ultimate source. And you and I are these seeds trapped in matter fashioned by Sophia's abortion. A rather simple explanation, barring from several accounts, but I hope you get the movie preview of this greatest of romantic epics devised in the human imagination. Failure is not an option. But there's much more to her than you think. She is the elusive, seductive bride of God in the Jewish Zohar. She is the Shekinah, the presence of the divine that the Creator God lost, and now we are responsible in helping him restore it back to him, so that he may gain his own gnosis and remember that he is but the lower emanation of the Godhead. Jehovah also has to learn to work in conjunction with the heavenly tapestry. Think of the myth of Zeus giving birth to Athena, the goddess of wisdom, by her sprouting out of his skull. And then think of his standard behavior that is not unlike Jehovah, Indra, Allah, and all the other solar gods gone astray. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. Like the Talmud says, we are the creative vessels of the divine trying to figure things out. When we are filled with virtue and righteousness, one more section of the cosmos is healed. We are gray. We stand between the candle and the star. Another pseudo-fact that most don't know about Sophia is that our heron is actually the incarnation of the trickster god, much like the coyote, Loki, Puck, Prometheus, and baby Krishna are, just to name a few. You may be spitting out coffee or volcanic spring water on your screen at this remark, but Yano Curiano makes a great case for this in his magnificent book, The Tree of Gnosis. Sophia's characteristics fit the model of the trickster god. She is curious, disobedient, and helps men in often whimsical ways. And why shouldn't wisdom be playful? Part of enlightenment is finding our childlike nucleus and letting it shine like the jerk that drives by you with his brights on. 
the kingdom of the fathers for children, as Jesus explains. Jesus also speaks much about children and Sophia. For example, in Matthew 11:19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Or the parallel in Luke 7.35 where Jesus says, Wisdom is vindicated by her children. That is our job, my beloved true seekers. She is playful and you should play with this heavenly hottie in order to prove to her that we are her children. For in most Gnostic texts, she is the one who gave us the divine spark in order that we may aid her in restoring the universe and battle the Archons. It's too bad she won't live! But then again, who does? And like a heron of many ongoing popular tales, her stories vary as she is put in different situations with different foes. In the end, but actually the beginning of time and space, it is her redemption, the metanoia turning about, that is the first climax of the cosmic drama. The next and ongoing climax is her aid to take us back to the pleroma, the all, the fullness, the region that is everywhere and nowhere, beyond good and evil, love and hate, life and death, pure completeness with the source of existence and non-existence. In the Kabbalah it's called Ayin or non-being. In Buddhism it's called Nirvana or extinction. In our days you may call it just letting go of the wheel once and for all. You are free-falling like Tom Petty sang. Remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Another fact many people have no clue about is that Sophia was given birth before the Gnostics came about. She is ever-present and important in Jewish theology and the wisdom literature. Yet her role, like all things Gnostic, was whitewashed throughout time by male-dominated societies and large penis gods. What's so funny about because Dickus? I've mentioned a few examples in past shows, but here are some again, many taken from Jordan's book, The Da Vinci Prayer Book. From Proverbs 8 Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the one that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But one that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All that they hate me love death. And here is Sophia in Ecclesiasticus chapter 24. I came out of the mouth of the Most High, the firstborn before all creatures. I made that in the heavens there should rise light that never faileth, and as a cloud I covered all the earth. I dwelt in the highest places, and my throne is in a pillar of a cloud. 
I alone have compassed the circuit of heaven, and have penetrated into the bottom of the deep, and have walked in the waves of the sea, and have stood in all the earth, and in every people, and in every nation. He created me from the beginning, before the world, and I shall never fail. And lastly, from Sirach chapter 24. Wisdom sings her own praises, before her people she proclaims her glory. In the assembly of the Most High she opens her mouth, in the presence of His host she declares her worth. From the mouth of the Most High I came forth, and mist-like covered the earth. In the highest heavens did I dwell, my throne on pillar of cloud. The vault of heaven I compassed alone, through the deep abyss I wandered. Over waves of the sea, over all the land, over every people and nation I held sway. Among all these I sought a resting place, in whose inheritance should I abide. Then the Creator of all gave me His command, and He who formed me chose a spot for my tent, saying, In Jacob make your dwelling, in Israel your inheritance. Before all ages, in the beginning, He created me, and through all the ages I shall not cease to be. And there is so much more, my beloved true seekers. What a love story! In Proverbs, Songs of Songs, the writings of the prophets, the letters of St. Paul, the canonicals, Sophia is hidden from us but waiting for us to remove her veils, one by one, until we are presented with the one who is our eternal mother, our lover, our daughter, and our sister, our heroine of a thousand faces but one love. I'm so afraid of how powerful this is! The Gnostic scriptures are just as breathtaking. Simply go to Gnosis.org and read such bombs as Thunder the Perfect Mind, the Trimorphic Predanoia, the Exegesis of the Soul. Hell, it's hard to find a Gnostic work that doesn't mention her or one of her sensuous avatars. Yet in many Gnostic works, Sophia is known as a whore. But of course you must understand that in ancient times, a whore was just a synonym for a lost soul. After all, we are all whores, whoring ourselves every day for the archons of society and the archons of our own tyrannical ego. Like I said, Sophia's story is our story. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra. Lester, Martha Stewart. Fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. And lastly, the saga of Sophia is very, very unique. You might find um, light parallels in Sumerian, Greek, and Egyptian religions, maybe comparing her to Isis, Inanna, or Urinami. But the reality is that thinking the divine lost its wisdom, went crazy, and in essence became us, is and always be unthinkable to all religions. But if the pleroma, the all, the fullness, is everything and nothing then, by default, it also had to experience error or have error as part of its matrix. And here we are, my beloved true seekers, in the regions of error, of high cosmic drama, trying to fumble our way back into perfection that will end our suffering once and for all. But enough of my drivel. Let someone more sapient than my mortal incarnation bestow us a good snapshot of our heron and true mother. Welcome again, Jordan Stratford.
Why don't I start with uh, what you might think is a loaded question, but can you give us a short definition of who the Gnostic Sophia is? Yeah, I, I really can't. <laughs> I think that that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's really telling not only about the, the the scope and scale of Sophia archetype generally, but also about the moving target of Gnosticism. Um, and I think that, uh, just to give you kind of a sense of perspective, that when we see Sophia uh, in Gnostic myth or within the Platonist material or Jewish wisdom literature, it's really important that because we have this ambient idea that we're talking about a person, that we're talking about a, a woman's proper name, that at the same time, quite often, you know, particularly with, uh, with Plato, when he's talking about Sophia, he's not necessarily talking about a, a goddess of wisdom. Although sometimes, in my mind, he very clearly is. Right. But other times he's talking about wisdom, you'll see the word Sophia, and he's simply talking about something that's a wise decision. Yeah, um, uh, I decided not to have that, that uh, extra slice of cheesecake. That was wisdom. You know, he's not necessarily talking about the actual persona of the goddess of wisdom incarnate in his kitchen telling him not to have more cheesecake. So um, you know, a good analog is looking at Psyche, who uh, we see her in the, the Orphic cycles as a goddess. Um, we see her also within... Uh, within Gnostic tradition, but we also see her simply as uh, as a common noun, meaning mind, or particularly the intersection of, of mind and body, sort of a, a physical sense of mind, in the way that in the 21st century we talk about brain. And we also then see the word psyche having a very strong theological component where she is just soul. And so in the same way that Aquinas could spin off the word psyche, he's not talking about psyche the same way that the Orphics are talking about psyche. Uh, and he's also not talking about psyche the way that Freud talked about psyche. So we've got a kind of a moving target when these, you know, we tend to overload these Greek terms, uh, use them occasionally as proper nouns, occasionally as common nouns, with a very slippery uh, shifting from one phase into the other when we look at this stuff in, in any kind of retrospect. So that's why, no, I can't give you one finger of who Sophia is. But, you know, if I were to, I would, you know, I like to, uh, to resort always to the cosmogony of the Apocryphon of John, which is part of the Nagamad Library. And uh, in the Apocryphon of John, Sophia is an emanation of the Pleroma. She is really the first point uh, in of the universe of the, the the whole shebang that we can really hang our hat on you know the pleroma is just so vast and infinite that we can't get any kind of shape to it we can't call him god we can't call him him or her the pleroma doesn't have a belly button when the pleroma starts to identify itself uh, it identifies itself as opposed to something that is not itself so now we have this polarity. We have the, the syzygies and, and the barbalon and, and these other terms to describe the, these, these kinds of polarities. And from the polarities issue forth Sophia. And she's really sort of the first uh, idea or concept of God that we can, you know, at, at least on, on a radio show with a cup of coffee in one hand and a cigarette on the other hand, talk about having a belly button. That is to say the first expression of divinity that we can relate to 
that we can put weave into our stories and find any meaning from it. Well, why don't we go a little bit, a uh, little back in time, and uh, go to the historical Sophia? Uh, you mentioned Plato, which probably the Gnostics drew. Well, obviously the Gnostics drew from, but yeah. uh, doesn't Sophia also uh, predate Gnosticism in Jewish literature? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see the the, the character of Chokhmah in um, uh, in the Book of Wisdom, or sometimes the Book of Wisdom of of Solomon, which increasingly is being known as the Book of Sophia. That's really the the part at which we see an extremely erotic relationship with wisdom that she's to be to be prized as a lover um, more than worldly possession, more than power, um, more even than a rational understanding. She becomes a not an irrational or a subrational, but but rather a super rational understanding of the way that the world works and our role in it. So she becomes a an erotic figure. Uh, signifying our, our reunion with, with the infinite, with the mystery. The Jewish wisdom literature and its aesthetic, particularly the, the, the symbology, the wisdom having seven, seven pillars, etc., we see um, uh, her completing the Ogdoad, so that there are the, the, the seven pillars or the, the uh, climax heptopulos, the seven stages or the seven heavens between earth and heaven, and she completes them because they, they issue forth from her, uh, creating an Ogdoad, creating this, this uh, space of separation for reflection that we also then see uh, characterized in the Grail tradition as the Chapel Perilous. These, what I'm, the point of this is that these ideas don't go away. We see, a, uh, we see Sophia in Jewish tradition as becoming equipped or accessorized with a whole kind of symbolic language that pervades even 4,000 years later, and it just never really stops. So it was intentional that they, uh, uh, she's just not in the, the Jewish tradition or originally an abstract idea, but she's actually a personhood or a goddess, and then maybe she was whitewashed? No, I would say the other way around. I would say that um, the, the reason why we keep telling these stories and we keep putting a, a character on, on this is because we have something that through, even in an oral or, or tribal or shamanic tradition, we have something to learn from this story, and that's why we keep telling it. You know, is, is Sophia really out there in, in orbit uh, with her belly button looking down on us and patting us on the head when we do something wise? Yeah, of course not. <laughs> We're talking about a psychological process, an underlying psychological reality that when we honor it and when we respect it, uh, it, it pays off for us, puny humans that we are. So, you know, I would say that uh, if she starts out as as an archetypal force, we weave stories around her. Sometimes those stories become ossified, they become externalized. Uh, and every time that that happens, whether we're talking about God or Satan or good or evil or wisdom, uh, anytime that we, we calcify or try to, to externalize these ideas and say, there, here's, there's this completely external force from us, we miss the point because we, we uh, lose our integrity. We're, not, we're no longer integrating the stories. Well, it's just, it's, I mean, in, that, in that respect, Sophia is, she's, she's a, a fundamental reality to our, our own maturation and the way that we learn about the universe. One of the ways we do that is that we make up stories about her. Those stories then become a person. 
Yeah, it's the eternal uh, warning and uh, initial argument we have at the Palm Tree Garden. Don't take it literally. <laughs> Even Gnostics take things literally. And then uh, wasn't, uh, what about uh, Philo of Alexandria? Didn't he synthesize or revive the archetype of Sophia? Oh, very much so. Um, the, uh, uh, he, he's an enigmatic character all by himself, but certainly um, a lot of the, uh, the, the kind of fairy tale language that we have about Sophia, where he's obviously singing and weaving from these two very strong, uh, you know, the warp and weft of, of the Platonist, or in his case, the middle Platonist ideas, and Jewish wisdom literature, he's putting these things together. And that's sort of a classic example of what Gnostics do to myth. We sit down and we say, okay, there's a component of this and there's a component of that. It's, it's a lot more like uh, jazz or like cooking. <laughs> we're dealing with multiple <laughs> ingredients rather than uh, saying, you know, that uh, we're trying to record or extract some kind of history. No, we're, we're improvising. We're trying to tell a story so that we can create a space uh, within ourselves to, to reflect on, on what it means and try to extract the lessons from it. Yeah, and that's basically what he did. What about uh, some of the early Gnostics like uh, Simon Magus and Saturnalius and Menander? Is the concept of Sophia found in their, in their teachings? Well, it's um, it, only yeah, specifically within those we see much more of a... I mean, we don't really know anything about, about Simon Magus at all, uh, what he said or, or who he was, and so it's really easy to Plato him into any kind of shape that, that we want. So for the most part, I just kind of step around him. But for the later teachers, um, the idea of concretizing Sophia as a goddess, which is really explicit in uh, in Jewish wisdom literature and some of the more uh, erotic uh, material, paraphrase of Shem, Origin of the world. These all show Sophia as an as an erotic initiatrix, and they use the metaphors of conception, of blood, of semen, um, about uniting with her uh, in, in these using these, these clearly sexual and uh, overtly sexual metaphors to talk about uh, union and and matrimony and, and really bonding to. Uh, for your entire life, you know, this, this sense of marrying Sophia. And yet, uh, the further we get away from the early Christian period, the more abstracted uh, Sophia becomes. She tends to uh, either become more of a, a Platonist argument, or we take the same uh, archetypal thrust of Sophia, and we distribute her among other literary characters, whether it's Mary, Mother of God, or Mary Magdalene. What uh, and seems uh, the story of Sophia, as I've said before, is our story—the story of exile. You know, the theme of exile, the Jews' exile of us wanting going home. But in a, in a didactic sense, what was the purpose of her giving birth to the demiurge or the abortion, as she's as he's called in the Secret Book of John? Well, um, the the story is uh, the Gnostic myth can kind of be summarized in the fact that we start with with the infinite, we start with the void of the pleroma, and the pleroma, after a while, gets a sense of itself, and then it has a, it's a self and non-self. We also see this within Kabbalah, the the progression, just above the tree of life, we have Ain Ain Sof Ain Sof Ar, and it's about the infinite 
under what it, as soon as the, the internet has a sense of self, it has a sense of non-self, and we have two things. Of the two things, if you leave a, a, a masculine and a feminine polarity alone in the dark for an infinite amount of time, you know, uh, babies emerge. <laughs> the baby that emerges out of that is, is Sophia. And to, to humanize the story, Sophia is jealous, essentially, of her parents' ability to create her. So without using the, the spark of the pleroma, she simply creates her own emanation. She issues forth uh, the, the demiurge or the, the organizer. I think it's really important to... to uh, when you talk about the demiurge, to really stress the fact that he's he's nowhere in in uh, Gnosticism or even with the Platonist texts is he a creator. He never creates anything. He takes the pre-existing universe and he organizes it in a certain way. So he's the systematizer in the way that uh, a librarian organizes books but doesn't write the books. Um, the demiurge never writes a book. You know, out of the demiurge, or or sometimes co-created with the demiurge, are uh, are, are the archons and the rulers, and these represent uh, different facets of our of our identity: our cruelty, our injustice, uh, our ignorance, most certainly ignorance, uh, and our sense of separation from from the pleroma. And then, in turn, the archons create us because they are jealous of their mother's ability to create, so they create a, they create a world. They create, the, they create a system, or that is to say, they organize a system, and out of this uh, system emanates us, and we, in turn, emanate systems from ourselves. Uh, so the whole thing becomes this kind of uh, artifact shockwave where uh, each thing that becomes aware of itself uh, creates a system to learn about itself, and each of those systems then spawn... Uh, further artifacts that then spawn further systems and so on. So there's Sophia, who is essentially our grandmother, um, realizing now that the archons have created this whole race of beings for not so much their amusement, but to aggrandize themselves, just just as she created them. So she feels really bad about this, and in the story, she she steals a like Prometheus, a spark of the divine fire from from the pleroma, and she secrets herself down through the seven heavens, through the climax Hatapilos, which is very similar to uh, the descent of Inanna and the, the dance of the seven veils, etc. And she comes to the Garden of Eden, and turns herself into or hides herself in the form of a serpent, and she takes the spark. Uh, of the pleroma, and she hides it in the fruit of the, the tree. And then has a conversation with Eve, says, you know, hey, check this out. The, that process liberates her, her daughter, liberates Eve, and Eve becomes the first Gnostic saint. Eve then in turn, not out of anything else but, but compassion for uh, the, the, the suffering and compassion for the ignorance of Adam that she offers this, this to her husband. At, uh, at which point, now that both Adam and Eve have a spark of the design, the spark of the divine, they are aspects of the pleroma. They are fully awakened, enlightened beings. And they have something that the archons do not. So they've been liberated from this archonic authority. And then Demiur reveals himself in the garden, and he says, hey, kids, get away from that tree just like the Jell-O commercial of the 70s. And he, he says, I'm the only God. There's no God before me. Now, at this point, Sophia sheds the snakeskin and is there resplendent to the garden in her true form and says, 
you're, you're wrong, blind one. And she called the demiurge by one of the names that he's known, Yeldabaoth and Saklas Samael, I mean, child and fool and blind one. And you know, now the, the uh, Adam and Eve, who are, who are us, essentially, are now free to leave the garden and to live their lives on their feet. Even though it's a wilderness and it is an exile in its own right, at least it's, a, it's an exile uh, of choice and of awareness. Yeah, we see um, a basic theme or a misseme crossing all the uh, the Gnostic scriptures, which are in the Nag Hammadi library. But isn't a, a very different twist or inter- interesting twist is that in the Pista Sophia, isn't she actually betrayed by her own her own aeons? You know, the, the Pista Sophia is a really difficult document, and. Uh, and it's really kind of underscored by the fact that it's not a very good one. <laughs> it, 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 it makes for a lousy story, uh, and there's some fairly poor character development. And, you know, in, in Hollywood terms, it, it needs a third act. The Pistis Sophia is, is a bit of a dog's breakfast from a number of different traditions, and it is not coherent in, into itself, so integral into itself. Certainly we see a need to reconcile uh, the Sophianic myth with what's rapidly becoming at the time of its, of its authorship, uh, an entrenched Christian story. So we see some of the, the, the creeping misogyny and you know, a creeping orthodoxy throughout um, the, the Business of Sophia. So it's almost apologetic in the preeminent role that the Sophianic myth has uh, with, as from the background of all this material. So it's when you're looking at it as a, as a source doc for Sophia, it's it's really not a good starting point. Looking at something like Apocryphon of John or Origin of the World is going to get you a lot further down that road. Uh, what other texts? I mean, Sophia is all over the place in the Nag Hammadi yeah. Library. But what what would you recommend uh, for the beginner to read? I mean, the Apocryphon of John is pretty heavy in itself. But, uh, for example, I always tell people to read Thunder, the Perfect Mind. What are some of, what's some of your advice? Well, yeah, certainly Thunder, Perfect Mind um, is uh, what they call an aritology. Um, it is, is a, a declaration, and it, it, um, it obviously comes from a much older tradition because of the, the kind of literary genre that it represents is very similar to these um, doxologies of Isis. And so it quite likely came out of this Alexandrian cafe society that was a fusion of these, these Hellenized Jews in 2200 uh, years ago um, who were, they came from Jewish backgrounds, but they were completely um, Greek-educated, uh, cultured to be Greeks, and they were living in, in Alexandria, which is down the block from the Temple of Wasir. Uh, and right. celebrating the, the, the social and civic calendars of the Kemetic religion. So, Thunder Perfect Mind is what, what differentiates a, a, a doxology from an eritology is that it is Sophia speaking on her own behalf, talking about all the things that she is. And what's really interesting is that Unlike the Pleroma, who is you know, these sort of large, sweeping, intangible, so that it becomes very difficult to talk about, Sophia reveals herself in, uh, in roles that intersect between life and death. So there's a very strong human connection 
with Sophia. So she becomes a, a kind of an advocate figure. Um, she's both the whore and the bride. She's the virgin and the crone. She's the the the, the wife. Uh, she's the mother. Yet she's barren. Yet she's the the midwife. All of these points of contact, war and peace, um, that that sort of seem in some ways external to us. Okay, I've been struck by lightning. She says, you know, I'm I'm, I'm the lightning that strikes you. There's this uh, sense that where the rubber meets the road of human experience and and, and the external world, the, the those things which are larger than us, that's where she is. She's that point of intersection. Uh, there's that wonderful line from Thunder Perfect Mind, I am the utterance of my name. And it's talking about that that instant accessibility. That even if you just if you think about her, if you give her language, if you give her a story to inhabit, she's there for you to do that. Uh, and that's extremely liberating. So from a, uh, a, a standpoint of looking scripturally, I would certainly begin with Thunder Perfect Mind. Then I would uh, encourage you to look at the Book of Wisdom of Solomon, which is just gorgeous because it's simply um, this sort of strong repetition of the cost of wisdom and that she's worth it. It speaks in, in a very um, moving and, and very sympathetic way. It's uh, it's almost a romantic language uh, of this connection with wisdom and the desire for wisdom. Uh, it's, it's very moving, very beautiful, and just the poetry of itself has uh, survived uh, various stages of translation, so that it's still extremely evocative. Who exactly is Akamoth you hear about in the Valentinian account and in the Gospel of Philip? That's, again, that sense of intersection that I was talking about. There's Sophia in her role where she is there in, in, in the Beatles, in the, the profundity or the, the, the depths. And when she's out there in the infinite, she's, she's wisdom as more of an abstract model, it's more of an abstract concept. When wisdom hits the, uh, hits the earthly plane and enters the human story as she does when she becomes the serpent in the garden. And I'm reminded of that uh, wonderful military saying that uh, strategy is always the first uh, casualty of the battlefield. Yeah, very true. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, know, you have these ideas, you have this kind of disembodied wisdom that uh, as soon as logistics and, and pragmatic reality set in, you have a kind of a, a sullied wisdom. You need to have this become so, a little more, uh, a little more beat up. And Akamot in the Valentinian tradition is that kind of compromised wisdom. It is a, a, a state or an aspect of wisdom that is in, in many ways less than ideal. Um, and there's aspects that are invoked by the, uh, the concept of Akimoto that, that deal with amnesia, um, forgetting your ideals, losing your way. Uh, we see a, a really good example um, in Hymn of the Pearl. Now, in this case, it's, it's about a prince, but the, the same thing applies, where the prince is set forth, sent forth from, from Egypt. In other words, it's from the, the land of the, the sun is rising in the east from Egypt, and it's it's moving towards the west, so that the source of light, in this case, is, is Egypt, and it becomes an analogy for heaven. Uh, and the prince is sent west, is sent into the land of sunset, sent into darkness, in order to, to find a pearl, and he has to uh, confront, and the pearl's been stolen by, by a dragon or a leviathan, in other words, but 
there's his spark of the divine has been subsumed by his lower nature. So he goes out into the world, into the West, and he eats of the food, which has a sort of kind of goblin market association of you know, wandering into fairy and you eat the food. You, and really means you are cooperating and you are incorporating into yourself the, the nourishing things of the system, the things which keep the system going. And as a result, the prince suffers amnesia and he forgets who he is, and he, for all intents and purposes, starts wearing a paper hat, paying his taxes, and working at Burger King. <laughs> um, and then he gets this letter, he gets this message from his parents. So he gets a, 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 a transmission from, uh, the, from his own roots in his own divinity. And it says, hey, wake up, remember who you are, remember what you're supposed to be doing, accomplish your mission, become redeemed, and, and, and come on home. And so this is all he needs to do, and he goes and he finds the pearl, and he battles the dragon, and, and he, he slays the dragon and goes back, and we all live happily ever after. And that's our own story of remembering that we come from the Pleroma, but we inhabit a cosmos, we inhabit a system that has its own rules and regulations, and we need to negotiate with these forces. We need to render our under Caesar. We can't simply escape and become, you know, can't, can't uh, go crazy and starve ourselves to death and live in a cave, because that is a rejection of life. And rejecting life, that, that principle runs counter to Sophia in, in uh, many of the stories in, in the origin of the world and in um, Gospel of Eve, we also see the, the, the first daughter of Sophia is Zoe, is life. And the uh, secret book of James tells us to, to understand Gnosis and, and hearken to the Logos and to love life. So we can't just turn our back on the system, and yet we can't become, or can't become ruled by it. So the, the, the process of individuation and, and maturation is to find that, that balancing point, which is, of course, very, very difficult. And that's the human story right there, is to uh, live in a world but not lose our humanity, which in many cases, in the Gnostic ideal, is our divinity. Very true. And you mentioned uh, Zoe, you mentioned a few of the other avatars of uh, Sophia, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Eve. Uh, is, what about Norea? Who is she? Well, Norea is the, um, uh, the wife of Noah. And in uh, the, the Gnostic take, there's a really strong um, feminist quirk to a lot of these stories, and in, in a lot of the Gnostic stories. And I think a large part of that is because it was meant to rattle cages somewhat. I, I think that there was definitely a, uh, an archetypal current of recognition for the need to reconnect with the divine feminine, uh, particularly within the, these patriarchal traditions of you know, Judaism, and, and as Christianity progressed, it became more and more patriarchal. And so there was definitely a psychological undercurrent, but I also think that there was uh, a kind of a bit of a snotty teenage uh, snub <laughs> in the fact that, well, you know, we're going to keep reinterpreting these stories, and, and we're going to give the women a greater role, and, you know, the, the, the serpent becomes the hero, and, and these kinds of things of, of turning the story on its head. So in, um, in, in Noria, in the, the thought of Noria, she, uh, uh, she's really the person who, knowing that, that Noah has, has, been, has been given this mission, she's the person who really kind of kicks his butt into gear and, and makes him do it. And she has her own experience of Gnosis, which is beautifully described. 
and it's extremely poetic. And uh, so all of the female characters in, you know, Jung said that everybody you meet in a dream is you. <laughs> and all of the female uh, characters that you meet in, in Gnosticism are, are aspects or expressions of Sophia. Why do you think the nascent uh, Roman Catholic Church suppressed the image of Sophia and, and instead decided to go with the Virgin Mary as their main archetype of the female divine? I don't think that that was really a, a conscious decision. I think that that was simply the way that it happened. I mean, we don't have an organized Roman Catholic Church in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century. And by the time that we have an organized one, it doesn't actually have any power uh, because it can go and say, we're going to banish this idea and further that idea. Uh, and really what you're talking is a whole, you know, is, is a bunch of white guys in a room arguing. Um, <laughs> it, it, so it's impossible for us to credit uh, any kind of Roman Catholic conspiracy uh, saying we're going to push this idea and suppress another idea because they simply didn't have the manpower to go out into into every village and say, no, no guys, this is what you believe now. I mean, that's that monolithic or orthodoxy really is a, uh, a myth that things were a lot, a lot messier for a very long time. Certainly in the West, we see the same job being done by Mary, Mother of God, um, in the, the various cycles of, of suppression emerge in the early Middle Ages, but doesn't really last very long because we have this huge Marian surge or resurgence um, within the High Middle Ages. But in the in the Eastern churches, the idea never goes away. Sophia is extraordinarily prominent. Um, and the further east you go in, uh, uh, through Ukraine and into Russia, we see that Sophia is, is the name given uh, as Christianity converts the, the pagan goddess traditions across the board. It's not Mary who supplants the earth goddess, but it's Sophia who supplants the earth goddess. And really, it's just a name change because exactly the same work is getting done. The same um, archetypal experience is taking place. They're just using different terminology. Do you know of uh, any great thinkers throughout history that uh, revered her in secret or championed her? And I think Jack Bohem is one of them, right? Well, yeah, you've got within the al alchemical tradition. You know, the, the center point becomes this, this theology of the divine androgyne. And we see this sort of two-headed male and female figure, anima sanima, within uh, alchemical illustrations all the time. And Sophia is, uh, is obviously prominent. The, all the philosophers are literally lovers of Sophia. So we need to keep that in mind, that um, wisdom never never goes away in, uh, even in the most orthodox, rigid, patriarchal structures that you can imagine, uh, wisdom is still there. She's, she's not really going away because she's a part of us and she's a part of how we think. It's a question of how much acknowledgement is she getting. By the time that the alchemists are on scene, she's getting mad props all the time. So the, the entire purpose of alchemy is this veneration and, and longing for Sophia. So that becomes extremely, uh, extremely prevalent. There definitely is a is a shift after when when the Enlightenment hits. 
there's this need to kind of you hemorrhize and demythologize everything. Things become ultra rational. If you know, talk, you, you're, it's still okay to talk about Jesus walking on water, but you need to explain it somehow. It's like, well, I guess the water there was really salty, and you probably right. <laughs> into it for for you know, an inch. And it's like none of this stuff can be happening on a mythic level or on an archetypal level or on a story level. There's a rational or there's a scientific explanation for everything. It's uh, we're dealing with a, a very different concept of science than we are today in the 21st century when we're, we're dealing with. Um, a, a much stickier, um, slipperier universe than they were. Yeah, their um, universe was very Newtonian, and you could kind of wind it up like a clock, and there it went. We know that there's a, a whole lot more ghost in the machine now. So in some ways, the, our science is, is much closer to that alchemical looking for the X factor and, and, and seeing that ghost in the machine and seeing what impact that it makes. Now, where we really see the reemergence of the divine feminine as, a, as an archetype is, you know, 150 years on into the Enlightenment. And by the time you hit the end of the 19th century, looking at the tremendous psychological damage that the Industrial Revolution had wrought, that mechanization had wrought, you know, by the end of the, the 19th century, uh, anybody who was theoretically 100 years old was no longer living on the same planet that they were born on. Microbiology, immunology, refrigeration, the locomotive, the shrapnel. <laughs> I mean, these kinds of things had completely uh, transformed where you lived, the way you ate, the clothes you wore. Um, they were global on a massive scale. It'd be you know, not if, if it, in 1799 you wore shoes that were made 20 miles from where you were born by. 1890, you were, it's entirely possible that you were wearing clothes that were made 2,000 miles from where you were born. You really were living this completely different reality. There was this huge psychological shakeup. You know, we see in the, in the 1890s, Freud's coming up with his ideas, Einstein's coming up with his ideas. People left and right are starting to have visions of Sophia. We see within the Gnostic community, we see Duanel in 1889. Uh, a French Michel Bonnet at uh, was essentially a seance, has a vision of Sophia that tells him to uh, reestablish the Cathar Church. We also see the, the rise of theosophy. We see there's a, a kind of a lot of grasping for straws, particularly in, in North America, after the U.S. Civil War and the, the psychological trauma of the U.S. Civil War. People are looking for new religious answers, new religious solutions to this terrible conflict that was... was uh, one of the worst that the world had ever seen up to that date. And a lot of it had to do with mechanization and industrialization, just the, the widespread uh, impact of the carnage. So we also see things like um, uh, Christian science and Seventh-day Adventists and uh, the rise of Mormonism and all of these things that are, are kind of roughly contemporary to this um, push west mechanization and industrialization of the 19th century. Almost as a, as a psychological salve people start tapping into this collective unconscious need for, for wisdom, for a, a calm and sobering understanding of the divine feminine who shows up not as a kind of a Celtic pagan warrior goddess, but who shows up in the way that she's depicted by somebody like Nicholas Rorick as this, this figure who invites people into silence. That the particular avatar of Sophia that we see from that period throughout the 20th century and, and today, 
she's a very meditative figure. She's a very calm, hey guys, calm the hell down figure. <laughs> um, and so there's a, there's a kind of a sedative effect that uh, I, I think is much needed. And in in Jung's own impressions and, and his dreams of, of Sophia, and she's described as this uh, woman often often robed or wearing very you know, dark night colors, and uh, she's a, she's a, a certainly challenging figure, but not um, uh, not one inviting conflict. It, the challenge is to unplug, to disconnect, is to distance yourself from your conflicts and from your concerns, and just just shut up and listen for that. That is a really valuable lesson, and I think that we wouldn't be seeing this kind of archetype and, and this aesthetic being employed to illustrate this archetype uh, unless that this wasn't unless this was something that was happening very loudly within the collective unconscious. We need this now, which is why we keep saying it. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And uh, Jordan, uh, just for how do you revere Sophia at your church, the Ecclesia Gnostica in Albion? Well, Ecclesia Gnostica in Albion is actually just the name of my blog. <laughs> my, I'm, oh, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. But there, it was a fairly confusing name, and I, I started the blog about three years ago and I kind of regretted naming it uh, off the bat, but the uh, righteous in the apostolic Johannite Church, we do have a Sophianic rite. So we have a, a, a an ordinary rite. We have an ordinary uh, liturgy, and we have a Sophianic rite. And the the readings and the whole premise of the the role of the Eucharist is to create a space in which the the hieros demos, the, the sacred marriage, can take place. And it is uh, an invitation to to word and wisdom, to Logos and Sophia, to, to unite in our presence and, and in ourselves via the Eucharist. If you look at Western religion generally, as far back as you'd like to go, you have this, this concept of, of incarnation. In the same way that we have Woden falling from the world's tree and grabbing the runes on the way down, hitting in Europe and, and, and dispensing the runes to people before he climbs up the tree back up to Asgard, uh, in the same way that we have Christ falling to earth and then being temporarily suspended on the cross before he can reascend, we also have Sophia falling to earth in the Garden of Eden, offering up the apple and then reascending into heaven. This incarnational aspect of religion is the underlying reality of the Eucharist. Here is something which is infinite and divine and abstract and mystical uh, and super-rational, and yet here it is in this cookie that I'm holding in my hand. That yes, it's all out there, but it's all happening here, right here, right now. Not in some distant reality that this is the actual transubstantiation that is taking place uh, in a ritual environment. And, and that's a pretty loaded word, transubstantiation, but if you kind of break it down, you know, trans is across and, and, and sub is under and, and stance is, is standing, uh, and the Asian is the uh, is the process. So transubstantiation is to across understandingify this the host. We're changing our understanding, the, the hypostasis or the root of the host, from something which is material and earthly, and we are pushing it sideways. So its root is in the in the mythic realm. It becomes food for our mythic selves, so that we can better incorporate and be more integral to that lesson uh, within the Eucharist. 
the the names and the imagery and the mythology that we are using to to accomplish this and the the, the poetry and the, the art of it are within the aesthetic of Sophia. So we're using uh, Thunder Perfect Mind and we're using uh, parts from Sirach, we're using parts from the Book of the Wisdom of Solomon to uh, to enter into this mythic understanding of the host and its role among us. But this is happening here and now, not, not elsewhere. And lastly, Jordan, um, outside of uh, scripture, uh, Gnostic and uh, non-Gnostic, uh, what books would you recommend for the listener that really wants to understand or get to know Sophia? Um, certainly the, the definitive book is uh, Sophia, Goddess of Wisdom, uh, Bread of God by Kaplan Matthews, which was um, uh, originally a Mandala press book, but uh, was brought out in a new version a few years ago by, uh, by Quest Books, is the Theosophical Publishing House. Uh, it is a, a comprehensive... Now it's, it's really aimed at people who've got a background in goddess religion. You're going to understand this more if, if you've spent some time in, uh, in Wiccan pagan circles. It's by no means exclusive to that, but that just happens to be her own particular bias uh, as a writer. But um, it's absolutely, and I would say, a near exhaustive exploration of Sophia through her roles as the Black Virgin, which is a whole radio show we can do. Um, oh, yeah. Madonna, the Red Queen. Uh, there's particularly a, a lot of really interesting information about the survival of, of Sophia and Sophia archetype in, and her resurgence in Eastern Orthodox Church through people like uh, Vladimir Soloviev. Uh, and for him, he, he's a, a poet and there's a, a strong nostalgia. He's, he's very attached to the story of, of Sophia Akimov, who is the Sophia among us, who is wounded, who she suffers uh, to, to bring us the, the light of Gnosis, that, um, uh, that she loses her way, that she impoverishes herself. That this is a, a kind of thing that we also see in the, the Nessine Psalm, about how she, uh, she becomes blind and she loses her way and, and that she gives up to despair and she eventually dies and so that, that uh, Christ can then come and his mission is to, to redeem her. He comes to save her from the earth. So um, that was sort of Solovia's event. But we also see in Bulgakov, who was uh, a, a, a Russian theologian who, who died in the 1940s, and in the 1920s he was kind of called to the carpet because Sophia became as central to his Christianity as was Christ. Um, his theology saw uh, a, a, this alchemical idea of the divine androgyne, where Sophia is actually an, an integral aspect of Christ, and that Christ cannot survive without Sophia, that he's not a complete being, that the two of them are, are part of this uh, androgynous current. And, you know, Certainly, if you are in a, in a church with the word orthodox in its name, that's going to get you into some trouble, and it, and it did for him. <laughs> um, but we also see it through uh, the paintings of uh, Nicholas Rorick, who is a, you know, the famous theosophist, um, who did these beautiful, beautiful icons of Sophia. So she's everywhere, and um, uh, there's this constant need to understand and to, to connect with this, this ambient divine feminine and I think that what Sophia gives us right now, as opposed to other aspects or avatars of the goddess, is that we live in a world which is information-rich. 
we've moved from uh, a, a world that that uh, even 30 or 40 years ago was really pushed by data, um, but the data didn't have any context, and we've now started to uh, work within that data and to look at the information. And information is a process. Literally, it changes the form of of the that which receives it, and starting to get a superior sense of environmental consciousness because we have the data. Now we can make these decisions and can see where we are. What we're really desperate for is wisdom. We need to take this information, this process, and we need to to extend our context for it, and we need to put ourselves in a, in a new uh, paradigmatic framework by, by which we can make decisions not just based on intelligence, but actually based on wisdom. You know, what do we want to do? Who are we? Who are we really? What's what's our role in all of this? Uh, only wisdom can answer that. Intelligence and information and data can only get us to um, can give us uh, ways of framing the question. But for us to move forward and to connect with this, we, we need to invite wisdom. It's really obvious that we don't have a choice of ignoring her right now because she just keeps making right. And here we are. And here we are, and I couldn't have said it better. I think that should do it, Jordan. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on Coffee, Cigarettes, and Gnosis and taking your time. And uh, we'll get you uh, right back on when your new book comes out. When when should that be? Excellent. Well, I'm um, hoping to hear back to actually have a firm date this week. But uh, I realize it's just a kind of crazy, busy time of year for everybody. Um, I'm hoping that uh, the book will be available uh, on Amazon right after Halloween. So real soon now. All right. Well, well then uh, yeah. we'll certainly have you back on. And uh, again, thank you, and you have yourself a great day. Excellent. Well, why don't we start with uh, some of the basics, as you and I often talk about, terminology is everything, and terminology is where everybody gets lost and sometimes yeah. falls down a, a long well, as you and I have discussed terms such as gnosis and enlightenment and other things, uh, certainly in Christian yeah. literature, but the term wisdom is another one that's used in esoteric circles pretty loosely, especially when you attach it to a state of consciousness or some deity. But to you, what is what is wisdom to you, Sorita, and what did wisdom mean to the ancients, as far as your research has, so, has shown you? Well, I think that's a that's a it's a difficult um, question to answer and say you know exactly what wisdom would have meant to the ancients, because certainly wisdom, to a certain extent, is you know all about knowledge, but it's not knowledge. And I think where wisdom terminology becomes a little bit confused is when people confuse wisdom with knowledge rather than seeing one as the result of the other and then kind of like in a interplay a little bit. I think the ancient knowledge, um, wisdom would have been a very important virtue and it was certainly kind of personified through various deities and um, beings, quite often female ones. I also think that it represented balance and right action maybe a little bit, you know, interlinked with the kind of whole journey of the soul towards some form of perfection. I think it's a really difficult thing because also if you say the ancients, who exactly do you mean? You know, obviously the Shekinah and various of the kind of deities that we speak about within the cosmic Shekinah are kind of um, 
linked in a certain geographical area of the world, but um, the ancients kind of obviously there's, there's a lot of different cultures, etc., etc. So I think you know on the whole, wisdom is one of those really difficult things to define, and I think that it's very closely for me it's very closely linked to kind of um, intelligence that is open-minded and without illusion, without kind of being boxed in and being forced to see things through the windows that are created by other people. Rather, it is the ability to see the world. I don't think it's dependent on age, which is often like a, a, simpli- a sim- simplistic way that people put it, is, is that, you know, wisdom comes with old age, etc. I don't actually think that wisdom comes with old age. I think knowledge um, and experience comes with old age, and certainly knowledge and experience can lead to wisdom. But I, I really think that wisdom is something outside of that. It is really the ability to be able to see the world. Um, essentially, for me, wisdom is kind of very closely linked with the idea, I guess, of, of being outside of Plato's cave, maybe even, and being happy about it. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Uh, I guess that's what I need to work on, being happy about wisdom, because it's interesting <laughs> from the from the Gnostic point of view, obviously, as in your book, definitely you and David definitely write about this in depth. She's often known as uh, providence or foreknowledge or forethought, sort of this en- yeah, en- yeah. encompassing <laughs> vision of the world. You speak about wisdom or wisdom personified, and certainly wisdom personified represents a lot of different things as well. I don't think it's something that you can, you know, just kind of put in a little box, you know, and, and wisdom personified as, as the kind of wisdom goddess. I don't think you can really put her in a box because she's outside of, of the, the kind of um, understanding that most people probably have in the sense that, um, you know, she was everywhere. She's on the, the throne of, of, of glory, you know, the whole kind of idea of the spiritual quest which um, very much forms the basis of Jewish mysticism, um, which influenced the Kabbalah and the Kabbalah mysticism. You know, that, the whole idea that it's linked to the seven classical planets. This, this idea that, that she can really be a lot of things that kind of underpins the entire kind of ideas that we have of spirituality, really. And I think in many ways, wisdom is the, in that context, wisdom is very much the, I guess the end result of what you um, aim for with a spiritual life in the sense that um, you kind of, you know, a lot of people talk about the light and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But wisdom kind of personified is she's she's often called the saviour. Um, so Taira, she's um, the eternal light. You know, all those kind of things are very much closely linked with her throughout the ages. And as a kind of feminine divinity um, personified, she represents a great many different things. So, so it's a very difficult thing to just pin down and say exactly what it is. But I think that it's just something that you need to experience very much in, in, in a similar way to Gnosis. You know, you can't understand it fully until... Right, you, you know, can only like, really express it. But this, of course, begs the question... Uh, obviously, there are exceptions. We can talk about, you know, Enki or Thoth. But why is wisdom always personified as a female throughout history? Well, women obviously are wiser. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I shouldn't. I, I asked for that. I really did ask for that. I, th- I think 
Personified, they are probably placed this way with the personified as in a male context as well. But why she would be female um, within the Western um, systems mostly um, is probably due to the kind of idea that women carry um, are the carriers of knowledge. Um, you know, throughout history, I mean, you, you know, obviously Sophia is closely linked to wisdom. I think throughout history, women have been the kind of carriers more of like wisdom maybe to the male knowledge. So it's maybe some kind of um, perception related to that. Also the idea that um, many of the wisdom goddesses are also creatrixes, bringing and um, creating the world or creating life. And women, as in, you know, the female of the species, are, are the ones that create life through giving birth. So it's probably linked in that context um, with the female of the species um, through the idea of um, primordial light and divine wisdom in the same way that a woman can give birth by conceiving and giving birth to something ultimately is creating um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a life that continues on. It's a cycle of life that continues on through women. And certainly that's kind of, I guess, the logical explanation for it. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Yeah, the, after all, it's something you carry. And like you said, while in ancient times or actually, you know, uh, bronze times and so forth, while the men were doing the hunting and stuff, it was the women who were in charge with the really important stuff, you know, the medicine, the the, the knowledge of the tribe and so forth, so that would yeah, make so sense. They carried on that side of things a lot more than the men did, and um, so I think it's, it's like a natural division, which might not be a, a completely popular view, but, you know, men and women are made different, and um, I think sometimes it's good to celebrate those differences rather than to try and all be the same which is um, something that modern society obviously kind of encourages us a lot to do in, in the name of equality but I think that there are the differences that we should celebrate and women are better at men at some things just like men are better at some things than yeah yeah but it's not politically <laughs> correct it's just not it's so not Sorita, what are some of the characteristics and sigils of the wisdom goddess throughout ancient history? Uh, yeah. Your book obviously has the dove. Why don't we start there? The dove is absolutely beautiful, and I'm so very glad that we could um, find such an amazing image to go on on the cover of the, of the book. And the dove is probably one of the most enduring symbols of, of the Shekinah, but also of various of the other wisdom goddesses throughout the ages, including the Phoenician goddess the Canaanite Asherah, um, both of whom are wisdom goddesses and both of whom are historically and also symbolically linked very closely with the Shekinah. There's a beautiful piece in the Song of Solomon, which um, I'll just find for you and read you, which I think kind of sums it up. It's from um, you know, the Song of Solomon, which I'm sure most of your readers will be familiar with. It's from verse 5 Two, and it says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of night. And, you know, that is just absolutely, I, I just think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, the Song of Solomon is, is, is a beautiful piece of prose. 
And there's lots of other references where the Shekinah, most specifically, is linked with a dove or white dove, or when many of the other goddesses that um, we speak about in the book are linked to a dove. And also, of course, the idea of the Holy Spirit um, as part of the um, Christian trinity um, is also linked with the dove um, when we kind of see in the Gospels um, the Holy Spirit kind of descending on Jesus as he's, bat- as he's having his baptism in the river of Jordan um, with John the Baptist. And the, theme, the same theme is also found in um, some Gnostic texts where the Holy Spirit um, and, de- and Sophia is equated um, with various kind of references, etc., etc. So um, the dove is just a beautiful symbol of feminine divinity um, and wisdom. Yeah, so, so when we have the opportunity to use that for the cover of the book, we, we just really couldn't actually say no. And the dove, of course, is also a symbol for the Virgin Mary, very much kind of continued to carry the kind of flame for the wisdom goddesses within the Christian church, maybe in a slightly kind of um, veiled manner, but definitely it kind of still continues there. And um, it's, it's such a perfect image the kind of whole idea of, of a white dove in particular. And isn't also the serpent another one of the sigils or symbols for the Shekinah or wisdom goddess? Yes, the serpent is a symbol that you often um, find. Again, with the Shekinah, you find this as, as a symbol that kind of appears again and again with different wisdom goddesses, which is very much what we emphasize in the book. So, for example, um, the serpent appears with the Canaanite wisdom goddess Asherah, who was actually known as the Lady of the Serpent, and she's one of the earlier um, wisdom goddesses, and also with the Egyptian Kutshu, and you know various other kind of um, deities that over the ages, including Hecate, um, who we kind of consider as a, as a parallel manifestation of wisdom rather than a direct link to um, the Shekinah. And, um, you know, so this, this various kind of links there and also with Eden, who's a form of Sophia. You know, so the serpent is very much another symbol that, that is closely linked to the Shekinah, as well as some symbols of, of the burning bush, which is found in the Bible and in other texts as a, as a symbol of, of wisdom, specifically where um, Moses encounters the burning bush, for example, it's kind of representing the Shekinah. Um, the Shekinah is also specifically kind of seen as the whole of the tree of life, which is kind of described as a symbol of the Shekinah in medieval Kabbalistic writing, which is interesting considering that, again, the symbol of the pole or the tree or the grove, um, all kinds of tree symbolisms are linked very closely with various of the wisdom goddesses throughout the ages as well, specifically Asherah, um, the Canaanite goddess that I've already mentioned. So, um, and there's specific trees that is also linked to various of these deities. There's a lot of symbols that you can connect, in, and the symbol is actually a way that you can recognise the same themes appearing with different um, beings that have very, very similar characteristics in different cultures at different times. And although I wouldn't go as far as saying that they're the same thing, it's very interesting to kind of note the the similarities that they carry and the, the same messages that they carry over from one generation to the other or from one culture to another. 
So it's very important to, to kind of sometimes study the, the meanings of the different symbols and stuff as well, because, um, you know, through kind of learning more about the symbols, through learning, for example, more about what the dove symbolizes or the serpent or the lily or the tree of life, um, the symbols of light, the soul in general, inspiration, prophecy, the precious jewel, the pearl. These are all symbols that are associated very closely with wisdom and with the Shekinah. And, you know, by, by kind of studying them and understanding them, we can also gain a much deeper understanding of the kind of more mystical side, of course, of, of life and, and recognizing, you know, the signs and symbols and things around us and also appreciating a lot of the, the more ancient literature a lot more because the same symbolisms were used by different writers at different times and it's a fantastic way of connecting to um, some of the ancient literatures. And Sorita, what would you say are some of the earliest origins of the wisdom goddess prototype for Western culture? I would say that probably the earliest, I mean, in the book we talk about the earliest as being in Nana in the Sumerian tale, um, which would date the kind of beginnings of what would become the Shekinah, the kind of ideas that are linked to it, to at least 3000 BCE. This is the whole story of how Inanna steals the me, the kind of wisdom, knowledge. And um, you know, so that, that, that definitely is the, the oldest, and that, that dates to around 3000 BCE. What is also very old and very, very significant is the... Um, Symbolism and the correlation found between the wisdom goddesses and the influence that came from the Egyptian Mart or Mayet. Some people kind of prefer to kind of um, pronounce the name because, of course, we don't know for certain exactly how some of these Egyptian names and words would have been pronounced. And Mart, I think, is very much a, a deity that has a lot to teach humanity, even today. And her wisdom can be applied to so many different things. In many ways, just like the Shekinah is not specifically named as a goddess in the way that, you know, goddesses are, are usually kind of viewed, same way that kind of some of these other wisdom goddesses also could be seen as not necessarily being goddesses, um, exactly, because they're not necessarily deities, they're more personifications of something, or forces that can be classed as something slightly different. Mart, in many ways, is also more seen as, as, a, as a concept at different times in ancient Egypt. She is the goddess of natural balance, and the natural balance within the context of ancient Egypt involved all kinds of things like making sure that certain laws and things were upheld so that the Nile will still flood, because if Mart wasn't upheld, the natural balance wasn't upheld, the Nile would not flood, so the land would not be fertile, and the land wouldn't be fertile, people wouldn't have food to eat. Her symbol was the feather of truth, which is um, interesting because the feather went on to still be a symbol for judges many, many um, centuries later, and still used in some parts today. And also the scales of, of justice really very much kind of is a symbol kind of linked to this deity. Um, her oldest kind of known um, references to, to Mart dated to around 2700, 2200 BC. In a, in a nutshell, her story very much links into to various kind of, kind of stories about natural balance. And she was always invoked before the other deities and very important meetings um, 
government meetings, etc. as well, because shit and shit, truth would be spoken. In later times, Martha's seen as either the daughter or the wife of, of the creator god, Ra. Um, and the pairing of Martha and Ra is, is very similar to the kind of pairing that we see with them. Shekinah as the daughter or the bride of Yahweh in um, some of the Jewish mythology. The feather of Mart um, played a very important role in kind of um, Egyptian religion because we would we find things that, for example, upon death, somebody is taken into um, the Egyptian underworld and their heart, their literal heart, would be weighed against the feather of Mart, and if the um, feather balanced with the heart of the deceased, basically it means that somebody lived a balanced, truthful life, and if it didn't balance, then um, their soul would just be destroyed and eaten by the soul eaters. So it's kind of like that's the end, you know, there was actually an end to the soul if, if you lived a life. So it was incredibly important um, for somebody to, um, from a cosmological perspective, for their heart to be light in the sense, like the feathers of, of March, so that it wouldn't, um, you know, cause the, the scales to to weigh down and show that they lived an untruthful and a life or life that was without natural balance. And uh, what's interesting, what I what I liked about your book, Tusorita, which is probably something most people don't know, and well, I certainly learned, <laughs> is that you talk about how eventually Isis so, sort of supplanted Matt as time went on. But there is actually a big difference between the Egyptian Isis and the Hellenic Isis, isn't there? There is. Um, it's more specifically Isis in the Greco-Egyptian or the Hellenic um, context that would influence the wisdom literature and the development of various wisdom goddesses in, in a bigger way. Because the original Egyptian Isis, who I prefer to um, refer to as Aset or um, Ast, which is kind of various ways that her name is written within the Egyptian context, because really the name Isis is the Hellenic name for her. The original goddess, is much, much older, and her history can be traced back to probably about 2700 um, BC, a little bit later than that, maybe. And um, she was seen as, as an important goddess, but she was not the major deity that she's perceived to be, to be today. But even in, in the very ancient times, she was kind of considered as the, the, the goddess above Kind of like above a lot of the other deities, like she was, she was pure divinity. She was seen as very pure. But as time developed, Isis's cult started growing, and as quite often happens with deities that have a very popular kind of place within the culture of the time, they subsume into them. They kind of um, take over the cults of other minor deities as time progresses. And this is very, very true of Isis. She um, basically took on a lot of the roles of um, deities such as Hathor, the cow-headed goddess, kind of roles from Mart, the, the goddess I just discussed with her feather of truth, took on roles of the a very um, interesting lion-headed goddess, Sahmet, who um, is quite a fiery goddess who's linked to beer, blood, and basically trying to destroy humanity for not being respectful to her father, the sun god Ra. 
you know, so Isis becomes this kind of super goddess that, that nearly um, basically takes over the cults, but she doesn't just take over the cults and their worship, worshippers and places of worship, but she also assumes their roles and their powers as time continues. So her depictions start changing and we kind of end up with this deity who um, was taken by the Ptolemaic Greeks who ruled Egypt um, from around 305, 330 BCE into kind of mainland Europe. And she became incredibly popular um, within the whole kind of Greek world and people really took to her and within the kind of Greek culture she she even started taking on some of the roles of Demeter and you, you get um, her kind of merged with Demeter, the kind of mother goddess within the um, Hellenic world, but I'm digressing. So Isis, Isis is, it becomes this very universalist goddess who's, who's taking on a lot of roles. She also starts taking on very much some of the kind of ideas, like I said, with, especially when she kind of starts merging with Isis. In fact, you get references in, in some texts to Isis Mart as, as kind of a, a, a one goddess, this kind of merging of the two, which is, is quite common in some of the ancient texts. In, in, in the context of that, she then also becomes the daughter and the bride of Ra, um, where previously she's kind of seen as, as you know, not quite that, and she therefore mirrors the, the role again of that I said before that Mart had to to Yahweh and the Shekinah, Mart and, and Ra, so it becomes Isis Mart to Ra as as the daughter slash bride, just in the same way that the Shekinah is the daughter and the bride of Yahweh in the Kabbalistic text. And uh, what exactly does the Shekinah even mean? What does the word mean? I, I, for example, Isis simply means throne. What does Shekinah mean? Well, um, Shekinah is derived from the Hebrew, Hebrew um, root Shekhan, meaning to dwell. And this mean, this kind of hints that a tangible presence is a visible manifestation of the light of wisdom in the books of the Tanakh, um, which forms part of um, the later Christian Old Testament. And also the kind of the light of the burning bush thing by Moses that I mentioned earlier, or in the Ark of the Covenant and in the Temple of Solomon. So it's very much kind of linked to this, this indwelling light. Um, her name was also um, Aramized to Shekinta in some texts like the Targum, which are Aramaic um, translations of the Tanakh and that often include further commentaries to this kind of idea of light. You know, in some ways, I guess you could say she's she's kind of like a divine spark in everything. So it seems we have in the Old Testament, we have, uh, as you write in your book, you and David write in your book, we've got uh, Asherah, and you mentioned, I think, something like 40 places where it's obviously she's been mentioned and sort of <laughs> written off or and so forth by the uh, Yahweh or the patriarchal movement. But then you have this figure who appears in the Songs of Solomon and in the Book of Ecclesiasticus and stuff, this figure that seems to be sort of with God the whole time, often alone and creating the world and doing some amazing things. Are these the same goddesses or do you think that this, these are two separate, it's a sort of development? I think it's really difficult to, to, to say. I think that it's probably that it's a development of the same being. 
you know, as I'm sure you know very well, that these books and these texts are written down by people who often have an agenda of their own as well. And I think it's, it's a very kind of um, difficult ground to, to really kind of say categorically one or the other, because I think it's a very hard one. I think, I think it's a question of the way the texts are recorded makes it easy to manipulate the ideas that are passed down. And it's very difficult, with, especially with the older texts, to know exactly what is meant and what the circumstances are that um, it was written down. And in my opinion, I think that it's the same being that has been recorded at different times, maybe with slightly different characteristics, just like different people would, if they wrote down who is Miguel, they would have different things to say. You know, some people say, well, he's a husband or he's a father or he's a son or he's a, you know, a colleague or he's a friend. I think I think the same is true with this this kind of descriptions that I've passed down in some of these old texts, that it's very difficult to categorically tell who's being spoken of and, and exactly what the nature is of something based on a few writings that are passed down and that survives. It's not everything that really survives. <laughs> Obviously, the Gnostics drew this, much of their inspiration from the wisdom literature that's how they partly they came with their idea of Sophia and uh, began to rewrite Genesis just as they rewrote everything <laughs> that they could get their hands on. But uh, most Gnostics obviously know about Sophia, and I'm sure most occultists know about Sophia. Uh, and of course, I get into big arguments uh, with them about that because the one figure that gets forgotten and probably has it should be more exalted and at least their scriptures exalt them is the figure of Barbelo. Could you tell us a little bit about Barbelo? Barbelo kind of equates very well to the cosmic Shekinah, the first divine feminine principle from from the source. Um, you know, from the as you put it, the God above God. Um, so the kind of like original source and the first divine feminine principle that comes from that. The name itself, Barbello or Barbello, however you want to kind of say it, may be derived from the Coptic word Berber, meaning boil over or seethe or overflow. Um, hence you get kind of trans, um, translations such as the great overflower. It can also possibly come from Barello. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly because my Hebrew is really not that good. Um, but basically the Hebrew word for meaning in four is God, a reference to the Tetragrammaton, the fourfold world, um, word meaning, um, being the secret name of God, um, some people say. Um, it's also possible that the word Barbalo is just completely of unknown meaning and that it is derived from one of the boxes magica, or the magical name found in the Greek magic of the Pyre. Um, such as, for example, um, Barbaraloho, um, Barbeloch, which is all kind of found in the Greek magical papyri. These barbarous words that you find in the Greek magical papyri, essentially, some of them are so old that the exact meanings of these words, because they might have been kind of basically changed with time or incorrectly passed down, it's just completely been lost. I'm, I'm quite a big fan of the Greek magic papyri, so it's something that I'm really interested in. And I, I, you know, some of it, some people believe is, is kind of written in code and 
it's kind of all little bits of snippets that survive down from various um, papyrus that's been kind of um, merged together and kind of um, published as, as a text called the Greek Magical Papyri, but it's, it's all kind of snippets. So these names that are kind of um, recorded in the Greek Magical Papyri could be the origins of it. It could also be kind of linked um, to the name of Sophia's son, linking it to the kind of Greek magical papyri, so kind of kind of further su- supporting the idea that Barbella could have come from um, you know, a source in the Greek magical papyri. The role of Barbello, I think, is, is a very important one that really kind of needs a little bit more, you know, looking into. And I think it's, it's an important thing for people to kind of read up about it and kind of also look at the different kind of um, myths and stories and the um, kind of idea of Barbello in the higher or heavenly role in the now um, Hamadi text, which includes various kind of Gnostic texts, obviously, and um, I think it's, it's really um, an important idea that, and I'm not sure why, it was a really big surprise to me when you told me that it's kind of overlooked by modern Gnostics. Um, I'm still a little bit kind of startled by that, because to me, it's something that is just incredibly important. I mean, one of the other kind of theories that we put forward um, for Barbello is that um, it kind of might link more closely, I think we say that it's another name put forward for us, is noia, um, meaning thought in Greek, and this kind of emphasis on light and glory in association with the noia kind of links Barbello also a lot more with um, the Shekinah, which has also got um, symbols of light, um, linking and glory, linking into her meaning. So there's a lot of kind of really close um, connotations between um, Barbello and um, Shekinah, um, you know, you also get the kind of great, greater, lesser versions like you do with Shekinah. So, I mean, the, the kind of links between Barbello as a wisdom goddess and, and the Shekinah is absolute. And, um, yeah, I, I think for anybody that's not heard of her or that hasn't um, kind of read up about it, it's, it's something really important to just kind of um, look into. I certainly agree with that, and uh, of course, all the other female interesting uh, emanations that you have in Gnosticism, the trimorphic predanoia, the thunder, the perfect mind, and all that. But yeah. another interesting point you bring up in your book is that it seems that wisdom goddesses have a higher self and a lower self. For example, you talk about a higher Shekinah, lower Shekinah. There is a higher Hecate and a lower Hecate. You have obviously Sophia and then you have Akamoth and so forth. Why do you think the wisdom goddess has this sort of split personality besides me being sexist and saying that women have split personalities? It's obviously our divine right to have it. <laughs> um, I think that the kind of like higher and lower aspects of these different um, feminine divinities is something that um, is something that I certainly plan on um, studying a lot more because I find it absolutely fascinating. You know, I think that there's a lot of little things there that one should look at. I mean, on on the kind of material plane, um, wisdom needs to be there in order for you to have a sorted material life. So the presence of um, wisdom on the material, on the lower plane, obviously um, 
kind of linked very closely with, with your, your day-to-day life and having a day-to-day life that is sorted and grounded and, you know, something that you are comfortable in essentially make it easier for you as a person to connect with your spiritual life as well because there'll be less distractions if you don't have to worry too much about who's paying the bills or who's washing dishes. Right. So I think this kind of um, connection sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes bring things down to very kind of just ordinary, you know, maybe it sounds quite blatantly um, mundane um, ways of explaining things, but, but I think that it's that quite often, you know, we can make things a lot more complicated than it is, and I, I, I really think that it's kind of just linked to that, you know, just that balance that is inherently important within um, the need for um, kind of balance in a, in a spiritual life. In your book, Sorita, The Cosmic Shekinah, you and David give an excellent summary of the historical and theological continuum of the wisdom goddess. And like we spoke, uh, I'm glad you've got charts and timetables on all that because it's, it's, it's organized and it's good to see and it's missing in so many other books. And you give this timeline from ancient times to modernity in all our aspects. But I was just curious because uh, you don't, you barely mention the Greek goddess Athena, and I've always find her fascinating, even though I really haven't probably studied her as much as you have, because the correlation of uh, Zeus, uh, Athena jumps out of Zeus's head, which is Uh God loses his wisdom, is a direct parallel to the God above God losing his Sophia and the world, you know, going to to shit basically <laughs> so why, why didn't you focus on Athena at all I well you we do mention it a couple of times we, but, uh, we do mention her a couple of times when we feel there were parallels and you know things that were specifically linked to the Shekinah but the, because we made the focus of the book the Shekinah and you know kind of came at it more from a Kabbalistic perspective maybe than from the perspective of trying to kind of represent all wisdom goddesses and all divinities of femininity that has something to do with wisdom, in which case we would probably be working on this for the rest of our lives. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we tried to kind of focus more specifically on deities that had a specific link to the Shekinah and specific um, kind of, I guess, parallels to the Shekinah in the sense that, um, you know, how it all links together. So, you know, whereas we do mention Athena throughout the book, she doesn't really share many characteristics with the Shekinah, whereas, for example, Sophia shares a lot of characteristics with the Shekinah, as does um, Asherah or Barbalo or the various kind of deities that we do focus on. I mean, there's a lot more, pretty much every world pantheon, every kind of religion has, has got some kind of concept of, or any good ones have got some kind of concept of wisdom and a personification of wisdom. So if we, you know, tried to kind of chase down every single one of them, then we would have ended up with, with a book that would have been more about wisdom goddesses, whereas what we tried to do was to show the kind of development more specifically of the Shekinah and the, um, the kind of things that preceded the Shekinah and the kind of manifestation of the Shekinah 
as the chemist um, being that plays an incredibly important life in Kabbalah and how Kabbalah is perceived today. And, you know, so Athena just really wasn't that important within that context. And what most people don't know too is, uh, doesn't the Shekinah also make it into Islam? Yes, she does, um, as the Sakina, which is, you know, basically very important within Islam. It's one of those things that, you know, people tend to generalize quite a lot. It's, it's very interesting for me because I kind of sit a little bit on the liminal, um, between quite a lot of different religious and magical and occult traditions sometimes. And, I see a lot of kind of generalizations being made on both sides. You know, so within the kind of modern pagan movement, for example, and within the modern magical movement, there's a a big kind of movement towards people just kind of saying, well, Islam is very um, patriarchal. It's it's all about the male God and the same with Christianity and, you know, the church, um, being Catholicism, being all kind of about men. But in fact, the feminine divine kind of, is very much present in Islam. Um, the Shekinah is known as Sakina, and it probably is derived from Shekinah, meaning peace or tranquility, with the kind of meaning that also kind of mirrors the Hebrew idea of um, the indwelling, the kind of idea of indwelling that we discussed earlier. And um, the, the Sakina is found in stories um, of the very founding myth of Mecca, it's it's very very impossible to kind of like ignore the Sakina completely when when looking at kind of Islam as a whole because um according to their foundation myth they've got this whole thing of Abraham being guided by um the Shekinah which then tells him where to build um Mecca and interestingly we we of course talked about the whole serpent myth, um, mythologies and and symbolisms earlier. The Sakina um, appeared to um, Abram by actually kind of taking on the, the kind of um, shape of the serpent. So um, the kind of um, serpent imagery is very, very important here. And um, the Sakina actually is used a number of times in the Quran. And again, we find the kind of symbolism being tied to trees, which is something we also mentioned earlier you know, with, with the whole idea of the tree representing wisdom, the tree representing the feminine divine. And of course, the tree has got its roots into the earth. So very kind of the earthly and, and its branches upwards, the heavenly. So it's, it's very interesting kind of looking at the symbolism of that. And it's, I think it's very important for me personally, it, it's very important to kind of look at the kind of different traditions and stuff with, with an open mind and not just kind of put something on the kind of ignore list because you believe that it somehow doesn't um, have a balance of male and female and and all these kind of things that are somehow patriarchal because I think it's it's all all things in their place and all things within in context. Oh, indeed, yeah, yeah, because then you lose a a lot of rich tradition. I mean, medieval Islam was a hotbed of hermeticism, Mm -hmm. neoplatonism, alchemy, uh, and a ton of magic, so uh, certainly don't want to just uh, shunt something aside because, uh, like you said, you miss a lot of jewels. I, th- I think you miss a lot of little um, beautiful pearls, in fact, which um, 
is unfortunate because there's so much of it. I mean, one of the things that, that I've often emphasised in lectures is I, I speak about, um, I've done a lot of lecturing on the resurgence of the divine feminine over the years. And um, one of the things that I've always emphasised is, is the whole idea of the, the kind of um, the cult of the Virgin Mary being so strong in different countries. It had been very much, in some instances, an obvious continuation of earlier feminine divinities that, that have manifested themselves and have been interpreted through the eyes of, of the church or, or by, you know, people that are of um, the church religions as, as being the Virgin Mary. And that there's no um, need to constantly just kind of um, kind of insist that a, a religion that is that much founded on the idea of different the, the feminine divine is, is very much alive and well. It's never really kind of um, entered out of human consciousness. I think it's very important to um, kind of emphasise that sometimes because. It's a pity when people just ignore things because they don't realise it's there or because they've been told it's not there, which I think more often than not is the case. People believe what they're told without question. Yeah, I agree. I'm sure you get some looks on your faces when you mention the Virgin Mary. But <laughs> I've had quite a few people over the years. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the previous Pope at one point dedicated the entire world to Mary. Yes, he did, um, yeah. You know, which, if you take that into consideration, into the greater scheme of things, then if you, if, if the feminine divine is important to you, which it is incredibly important in the kind of modern pagan resurgence, then to ignore a feminine divinity based on a perception that it's patriarchal when essentially she still maintains one of the biggest followings of any feminine divinity. And in some sense, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, certainly in some countries, whether Catholicism isn't more about the feminine divine than it is about the masculine divine, if you want to divide things all into male and female. Because certainly there are some shrines to the Virgin Mary that, you know, receives literally millions of visitors every year. I don't think there's a lot of people that, pilgrimage to see the shrines of some of the pagan deities. So the, the Virgin Mary has got a very important role to play in the kind of whole idea of the kind of resurgence of, of the feminine divine. And of course, she's kind of had a resurgence in recent years as well. It's not insignificant that the Queen of Heaven should um, have an important role, really. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There's been more apparitions of her in the last hundred years recorded than ever before, and some say she's just not very happy. And also, the point should be made is, uh, you talk about pagans talking about the patriarchal society. Even in ancient times, if you had a cult to a goddess, it was a very patriarchal society. Women had less rights in ancient times than they did today. So it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can't judge history. We shouldn't judge as much, basically. I think we should just get on with our lives, really, and kind of see things for what they are, rather than um, worry too much about what may or may not have happened to you 300 years ago. You know, I remember when I visited some relatives in Genova, in um, or Genoa, in um, North Italy, and going up to um, the Shrine of Our Lady della Guardia, which is like on a hill, and 
um, I got quite car sick actually because like all true Italian families, they fed me quite too much food. Um, but I just remember kind of, you know, I was relatively new to Europe at the time and um, having grown up in a non-Catholic country as a Catholic, of course, you don't really have a full understanding sometimes of the devotion that people put into their religion. And I just remember seeing, you know, some older people actually walking up this really steep mountain path, which kind of spirals around this hill. And, you know, just thinking that at the time I, I had a lot of friends that were very into like Eastern religions and um, Buddhism and Hinduism and, and things like transcendental meditation. You know, they, they were all always talking about these monks in, in India or, you know, wherever and their dedication and, you know, the fact that they were walking barefoot and, and things. And, and I just thought to myself, you know, as I was sitting in the back of the car with very loud Italian family being overexcited, that here we are in Europe and there are people on pilgrimage. They're walking up this hill. They don't have to. They can take a car. I'm sure they have perfect access to a car. But, but they're walking up this hill. They, they're doing the same kind of pilgrimages that some Westerners are getting excited about the idea that people in the East are doing such things. It's happening right in front of their eyes, and they don't, they're not noticing it, you know. And I think very much the kind of um, you know, Our Lady, the, the shrines of Our Lady, the Marian kind of phenomenon around the world, very much kind of falls into the same category. Um, sometimes where there's all these amazing shrines all over the world. I mean, I live in in Wales, so I mean there are various kind of quite major shrines to um, Our Lady even here in Wales. There's, there's a there's a massive one in Gwynedd to Our Lady of Fatima, which is a bit strange, the shrine to Our Lady of Fatima in, in Wales. But there are various kind of um, shrines in England and France and, you know, all over the world. There, there are these massive shrines that people go to and, you know, honour honor the, the Virgin Mary out. And I don't think that she's something that you can just put to the side. Um, you know, and of course, kind of trying to bring it back to the cosmic Shekinah. <laughs> What <laughs> um, I'm supposed to be speaking about. Um, the, the thing is that the Virgin Mary, that there's a clear link that um, the Shekinah and um, some of the kind of parallel developments of the way in which she was seen kind of developed into and kind of merged with what became um, essentially the kind of whole thing with, with the Virgin Mary, early Eastern Christianity kind of took her on really um, wholesale and, and gave her a very important role as early as the kind of um, fifth, fifth century Council of Ephesus and, um, you know, the early church fathers um, considered her to be important enough to include. Mary was very much seen as embodying wisdom as well. So, you know, she was seen as, as, as in a similar way to um, the Shekinah and Sophia in her roles as redemptrix, I mean, people um, on a very basic level, in kind of praying the Hail Marys and, and the Rosary, it, it's about kind of her ability to kind of like help redeem you. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of whole role of her as redemptrix, but also as as the the kind of goddess, not the goddess, but the, the, the feminine who gives... Um, birth to the divine light um, manifest as Jesus, again, kind of um, 
you know, emphasizes that whole thing that we talked about earlier about the Shekinah and, and Sophia and all these different wisdom goddesses being associated with life and, and the whole process of Asha giving birth to life. And in the case of Mary, the idea being that she's giving birth to the kind of um, redeemer. You know, there's a lot of things like that. And in particular, if you look at um, Akka's, this hymn to um, the Atokas, you find um, a lot of references in there that have direct parallels to the kind of symbolism that you get with um, the Shekinah. And, um, you know, likewise, in, in some of the other kind of um, texts and stuff, especially kind of earlier texts, the, the, the symbolism is just very clearly that of um, a being that encompasses wisdom in a very big way. So... Not to be um, ignored, I don't think, at all. And uh, one last question is, uh, when did the Shekinah come out of Judaism and become, uh, say, not hidden and more mature? Is this with the advent of medieval Kabbalah? And uh, is the Shekinah basically Malkuth for all practical purposes? I think that, you know, certainly pre-Kabbalistic Shekinah is still... There, the idea of wisdom being within books like the Book of Proverbs, etc., etc., and there's a lot of very blatant references to it in the Bible, and and of course the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, um, which influenced um, the development of Kabbalah, and then medieval Kabbalah, kind of giving us such things as the the Tree of Life, really within kind of the con- context of um. Kabbalah, um, the Shekinah is the entire um, tree of life, as I said earlier. So, yes, she is Malkut, um, and she's kind of manifest in Malkut very much through the kind of energy of creation, the initial manifestation um, of the greater Shekinah. But there's, there's more to her. You can't just leave her in Malkut because, like I said, she is the whole tree. So, you can find her you know, kind of pretty much everywhere. So you've got the kind of on the tree, you've got the ideas of the lesser and the exiles, Shekinah, as well as the greater Shekinah. It, it really depends on, on which context. I mean, it's a very big and wide question. <laughs> um, I would say in kind of, for me, um, you know, I think that, you know, she very much is just there everywhere. And she's the whole of the tree of life. And you can find her everywhere, really. Um, if you're kind of approaching um, Kabbalah from the perspective of the tree of life. You know, in, in the Kava mysticism, there's a lot of, of references and such to her as well. So her development, I think, and, and manifestation specifically more as um, the Shekinah really kind of happens more when Kabbalah starts developing and, um, you know, manifesting more with things like um, the tree of life later on. But She's, she's definitely there, you know, in the original Kabbalah, kind of like little seeds kind of blossoming into trees and plants later on. Okay, I do have one more question. And personally, is there any manifestation of the Shekinah that you really like or really speaks to you or you draw upon? Within the context of the Shekinah, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, within kind of Western esotericism, of um, the Kabbalah as a teaching tool. So within that, um, the idea of 
the Shekina. Obviously, as kind of um, the feminine divine and, and stuff like that is, is important. Within the kind of greater scheme of um, wisdom goddesses, if I had to choose, which is, you know, always a very strange thing, it's like choosing your favorite child, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to do things like that. If I had to choose a, a wisdom, um, like a, a, fem- a feminine wisdom that kind of appealed to me more, it would probably be, it would be probably be a three-way kind of argument between <laughs> um, <laughs> the reasons why I could choose Sophia or Isis or Hecate, because Hecate is, is very important to me because of other work that I do. But she doesn't have any direct links to the Shekinah, but she does have a lot of um, very interesting kind of parallels to um, Sophia. Sophia is important to me just because she is and always has been, and I, I find the whole kind of idea of her kind of origin and the kind of whole um, structure in which she exists, the kind of the worldview in which she um exists very appealing and then Isis because you know she's just one of those very enduring figures in history that kind of manifest again and again in, in so many different ways but, but, but the same can be said of, of, of all the different ideas of wisdom because really um, you know, wisdom is something that we can hopefully all come to at some point in our lives and understand understand our place in, in the world through kind of understanding the Shekinah or understanding wisdom or understanding Sophia is something we can all strive towards, even if we, you know, can't always touch it. Hopefully we can kind of keep it within our sight. So for me, it, it's more of a, like a philosophical, I guess, approach to it. I, I can't say I have got a complete favourite, but it would be tougher between those three. I like doing things in threes. Well, that's all the time we have today, Sorita. I'd like to thank you very much for coming on Aeon Bide and discussing uh, the Shekinah and the Wisdom Goddess and your new book, uh, The Cosmic Shekinah. Thank you very much for having me, Miguel. What I like about your book is, uh, like me, you have a strong connection to Hypatia of Alexandria. I consider her one of my patron saints. Uh, can you give us a brief account of her life? Uh, how is she a Gnostic in your view, and how it symbolizes the true beginning of the Dark Ages? Uh, Hypatia is a figure that I think deserves to be much more known. My book, as you know, starts out in this first chapter with uh, the murder of Hypatia. And... Uh, we have from classical sources seven exact descriptions of this, eyewitness descriptions, which all more or less coincide. So it's quite a vivid event. Most scholars have uh, pointed out long before me, many scholars, that uh, the murder of Hypatia was the single event that probably triggered uh, the beginning of the Dark Ages. So uh, the question is, who was this woman? And uh, you know, how can she consider to be an Gnostic? The way that I view it, Miguel, is that Hypatia was typical, a fine example, of uh, an urban, what we today today call an urban shaman. She was a teacher at the 
school in Alexandria, where the famous library was located. Her father, Theon, was the uh, head of the chair of mathematics, and she herself was gifted in mathematics and geometry. And uh, some people say that the invention of the astrolabe should be attributed to her. So she was an accomplished woman, what we would call a university-level teacher in several disciplines. She qualifies as a Gnostic because she was also known for her skill in theology and in the arts of theurgy, that is to say, workings connected with the divine element of the world, co-creation with the divine, you might say. And so uh, she was both an intellectual, a teacher, and a Gnostic. And as a woman, she represented, of course, the egalitarian spirit of the Gnostic schools, in that men and women had an equal status. And in every possible respect, uh, it seems to me, from what we know of her life, she was a, a sterling example of the cream of the pagan intelligentsia, you might say. And so her death and the circumstances around her death uh, mark a time when the free spiritual and intellectual life of the pagan world was shattered by religious oppression in the name of the new religion of Christianity. So this is an important woman, and her death was an event of far-reaching consequences. And she was more than an intellectual. Was she initiated in the mystery schools? Certainly she was. Uh, the fact that she is credited with being a, an expert at theology and theurgy indicates that. What that would have meant in the time and setting was that she lived was not that she merely debated dry points about arguments about the existence or non-existence of God. Not at all. She was involved in the perception and participation of divine matters. And so that is one way of defining a Gnostic. A Gnosticos is someone who knows the ways of the gods and is able to collaborate and participate in the divine elements in the world. And she qualified highly in that respect. And uh, what were the circumstances of her death? Well, uh, that is differently reported, although all the sources describe the horror of the event in pretty much the same way. There are speculations about why, but it seems as if she had offended Cyril of Alexandria, who was at that time a leading uh, ideologue for the new religion of Christianity. And also, it's important to bear in mind that the whole structure of the pagan world in which uh, Hypatia participated, that is the structure of the mysteries and the mystery schools, which we'll talk about a little more as we go along, and the whole atmosphere of intellectual tolerance of paganism was, was shattered and broken by numerous events during her life. And actually, Hypatia, who died in March of 415 uh, in this horrible attack, was living actually at a time when paganism had been banned. Oh. But be because uh, by, by, by uh, punishment by death, to worship the pagan gods. Those laws had already been put in effect under uh, Constantine, but because Alexandria was such an open source of many cults and creeds, it was not enforced in Alexandria. So she still had a certain liberty, but one fine day, uh, the door came slamming down.
And uh, you write how it was uh, what you call salvationism that ended basically the mystery schools, the Gnostics, and pretty much ended the Greco-Roman classic era. What exactly is salvationism? Well, it may sound like an intimidating word, but actually uh, what I mean by it is something quite elementary. Salvationism is the ideology of salvation. It is the belief system that states that humanity is flawed and that we need to be redeemed or saved by a superhuman power. The specific form of salvationism that became dominant in Hypatia's time was, of course, Christianity, which still largely dominates the world today. Judaism, however, which was part of the prologue to Christianity, is also a salvationist religion. It relies on the concept of a divine messiah, the figure of Melchizedek. It relies on the concept of a paternal father god, a chosen race, the plan of the father god, the mission of the savior, and the final judgment or retribution of the father god. Those elements belong to what I call the Redeemer Complex. And that Redeemer Complex was formed in the Judaic religion and then inherited by Christianity. And that is what I mean by salvationism. All those who adhere to those elements and believe that we as human beings need a superhuman source that saves us are involved in the salvationist program. And you would say that the pagans of antiquity were not salvationists. What, how, would you, how would you categorize them? Well, certainly not, because if you look uh, at pagan religion, and if you look at polytheism, which is what it was, you'll see that the various gods of paganism, such as, say, Orpheus and Dionysus, or Osiris in Egypt, or the goddesses of the Near East, such as uh, Aphrodite and Astarte, they were conceived as divine beings, as, as superhuman beings, certainly, but they were not conceived of as saviors of humanity. They were rather points in the divine world that reach into our world. And so the essence of paganism was communication and contact with the divine, but not dependence upon the divine, to save or alter the human condition. Veering a little bit before we get back to salvationism, mm -hmm. uh, you would say that the Gnostics were basically, besides being uh, neo-pagan or pagan influence, were the direct descendants of the mystery school, and they in turn proceeded from the ancient shamanistic traditions. Well, certainly there is in Europe uh, a deep, deep shamanistic background to uh, Europe and the Mediterranean basin a deep shamanistic background to all the religious movements that existed and that were uh, evident in the early Christian era. Uh, you know, I take a different view, as you know from just having read my book, mm -hmm. I take a different view of how to define the Gnostics than other scholars. And that view, uh, in answer to your question here, Miguel, uh, focuses on two points. One point, and I, I think this will be helpful to people who are trying to get an approach to my work, one point is that I connect the Gnostics with the mystery schools, and uh, it should be uh, pointed out that other scholars haven't made that connection 
maybe some of the people uh, who, who visit your site and some of the people who have been studying Gnosticism over the last few years would find that connection to be obvious. I do. But scholars don't make that connection. But I have said that the Gnostics were teachers and seers who were involved in the mystery schools. And the mystery schools were themselves the result of a long, long tradition of indigenous shamanism all across Europe and the Mediterranean. The second point I make is that these Gnostics were also the teachers of the classical world. They were not only men and women who went into mystical states and experienced altered states and explored the divine aspect of the world, but they were also turned around and they were active in society as teachers. Now, those two ideas are not widely accepted by other Gnostic scholars. I think you would recognize that. They sound a little odd. Mm -hmm. But as a matter of fact, the first people who were writing about Gnosticism at the beginning of the 20th century, such as G.R.S. Mead, did make those assertions. So I'm not entirely alone in, in profiling Gnostics in this way. Oh, I certainly agree with you. I've always uh, posited that the Gnostics came from the mystery schools, but uh, again, it seems uh, it's something you and I easily connect the dots with. But uh... Well, Elaine Pagels flatly denies it. Really? And do you know why she does? She Because she says, and here she's acting out of her training, okay? She's acting out of her training and in the limits of her discipline, because she says there is no perceived textual connection. But as a matter of fact, when you read the Nag Hammadi literature, you find the word mysterion is used, isn't it? The word mysteries and True. mysterion appears in the Nag Hammadi literature. So how can she say that there is no textual connection if we find the word mysteries in the Gnostic literature? I don't know, but that's her, that's her protest. Yeah, well, scholars have to box it up in a Christian setting or else they can't sell books and <laughs> they do they lose their scholars jobs. have scholars have come toward gnosticism with really with blinders on and uh, the point that i'm making when, it's very interesting how things are moving very fast in regard to our perception of gnosticism have you noticed that oh yeah very true uh, the da vinci code for all of its failings and foibles gave it a real kick in the ass and really moved gnosticism ahead in our public perception when I started to write the early drafts of my book, I was really going out on a limb by saying that the Gnostics were the heirs of the ancient indigenous shamanism of Europe. That was like, wow, Lash, <laughs> you're making a stretch, right? <laughs> yeah. But now, just a few years later, people are nodding and saying, huh, yeah, that sounds right. You know, So it's moving very fast toward a broader, and I feel, much more uh, realistic uh, perception of the depth of the Gnostic movement. I think what might shock a lot of Gnostics is that you claim that they are not salvationists. Doesn't that mm -hmm. go against the grain that the Gnostics needed mediators such as Jesus, Seth, Sophia, Hermes, Trismegidos, and so forth? Well, it does go against the grain in many ways. I'll tell you why. It's because when you look at the Nag Hammadi codices that were discovered in December of 1945, you find 13 bound tractates, so 13 booklets, in which there are about 52 documents. Okay? Let's just concentrate on this. We won't talk about non-Nagamadi material right now. When you look at this content of this, 
in the first place, it's a terrible, incoherent mess. In the, in the second place, it is very, very contradictory in, insofar that it contains some elements which are pre-Christian, non-Christian, and even anti-Christian. It contains some arguments that completely reject the idea of a Messiah or a Savior. You'll find those, for instance, in the second treatise of the great Seth. But at the same time, and sometimes in the very same document, it contains arguments that support a Christian or salvationist form of Gnosticism. And so people are justifiably asking, well, where in the hell is this guy Lash coming from? And why is he coming off and saying that there is this pre-Christian and anti-Christian Gnosticism that has nothing to do with the figure of Jesus Christ as we know it? You may know that on my site, metahistory.org, and in my book, I compare the Nagamati codices to a pile of Lego pieces. And you know, you have a huge stack of Lego pieces in front of you in the middle of your living room. And you can make anything you want out of those pieces. You can create different kinds of creatures, supernatural creatures, birds, a bridge, a rocket, a robot. What I do is what all scholars do, but the difference is that I tell you I'm doing this. I'm completely transparent when I say that I select the Lego pieces that I want to construct a certain profile of Gnosticism. And what I have tried to do is to construct what I would consider the Sethian Ophite view of Gnosticism. There did exist a Christian or Christianized Gnosticism, which is mainly, uh, you know, associated with Valentinus, and also with Marcion. You could say that Valentinus and Marcion were teachers around the time of Hypatia who were involved in constructing a form of Gnosticism that was related to the salvationist idea. I totally reject that. Why? Because to me, that was a compromise movement. I'm not interested in the compromises and the syncretic forms of Gnosticism that were developed in Alexandria in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. I'm interested in the pre-Christian core of Gnosticism. So some people may think, well, John, I mean, you're really giving the game away here when you say that you just select the pieces that suit your agenda. But no, I select those pieces on the basis of my understanding that there was a pre-Christian and pagan gnosis, and I would like to recover and reconstruct that. So that is what I attempt to do. Now, to get to the point of this whole shaggy dog story, when you do that, you find that the teaching and the instruction in that pre-Christian system, the Sethian Ophite system, is not a salvationist program. It is about illuminism. It is about is the teaching about how to discover the divine potential in ourselves and to evolve it in relation to the Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. It's a completely different sort of program. It relies on our own incentive. It relies on our belief, pistis, our faith in our own human potential. And it rejects the Messiah concept and the notion of an incarnate son of God who comes and saves the world. 
Um, so needless to say, you don't think the Gnostics ever considered human nature more like the flesh to be error, flawed, or sinful in nature. The well, this is one part. of the biggest, biggest pieces of disinformation about Gnosticism that we have. And I have pointed out time and time again that there, in the material itself, there is very little evidence of this. You know, there's a scholar, Michael Allen Williams, who wrote a book called Rethinking Gnosticism. It was published, I think, in 1999. Yes. Now, this is not an easy book. It's more or less for insiders and scholars. But I'll tell you what Williams does in this book is he entirely refutes this notion that the Gnostics were haters of the flesh and that they rejected the material world. He shows that the evidence that is used, the textual evidence that's used to support that, is wrong and that the, that the argument doesn't hang together. Now, I realize that many people come to Gnosticism with that expectation. They sort of have heard somewhere, vaguely, that the Gnostics, you know, rejected the material world and hated incarnation. I don't really find that to be so. I find that to be a negative spin that was placed on the Gnostics by the Church Fathers who were uh, opposing them and, uh, you know, repressing them. Also, bear in mind that if you accept my uh, working idea that the Gnosticism has a pagan uh, origin, you have to realize that pagans did not by any means uh, hold the view that this world is evil and that we are condemned uh, to the prison of the flesh. So uh, I think there's uh, support for my argument from that side as well. But uh, wouldn't the traditional Gnostic simply say, or somebody out there on the street who've just heard the basics of Gnosticism, wouldn't they say, well, didn't the Demiurge create us, so therefore we are flawed to begin with? Yeah, well, this is one of the great, the great fallacies in the interpretation of the Gnostic material. When you look at the... You have to look at two things here. You have to look at, say, the content of the Nag Hammadi codices, and then go look at the so-called polemics, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and the church fathers who were writing against the Gnostics. The case for the prosecution of the heretics, as it were. Right. You know? yes. Sadly, in the case of Gnosticism, we have to go to the attorneys uh, of the church and look into the files of the attorneys of the church to find out certain things that the Gnostics said. So when you, you, you go to these two sources of information, you come up with two things that don't fit together. You find some passages in the Nakamadi text that say, or seem to say, because when you look really closely at the Coptic, they don't really say this, but they seem to say that the world we inhabit, the physical earth, was inhabited by an inferior deity called the Demiurge, right? As a matter of fact, if you go through the origin of the world, the hypostasis of the archons, and the tripartite tractate, you will not find that actually said. What you will find said is that the Demiurge believes himself to be the creator of our world. He falsely imagines that he has created our world. And so, if you let's put that piece of evidence on the table and say, this is really weird. I mean, this is ambiguous and strange, but we can't disregard this. We have to put this on the table and, and say, well, we don't know what to make of that. Let's look elsewhere and see if we find evidence that either confirms or denies it, okay? 
when we look elsewhere, we have to go to Irenaeus and to Book 4 of his Compendium Against Heresies. And in that book, Irenaeus states explicitly that the Gnostics said that our planet, the Earth, Gaia, which is specifically called Gaia in the Coptic texts. Really? Uh, yes. It's, it's, there is a Coptic uh, transliteration of the Greek word Gaia, and it's K-A-I, but it's recognized as the same as the Greek word Gaia. Irenaeus says that this planet, Gaia, the Earth, was formed by the metamorphosis of the divine Sophia. Well, wait. I mean, hold on here for a second. Put this piece of information on the table. Now, look at these two pieces. One piece says, if you're not careful, you might think that the Demiurge created our world, because he certainly thinks he did. And, there's, and there are certain pieces and passages which seem to imply that. But if you look at this other evidence, it's crystal clear that our Earth was formed uniquely from the body of Sophia. It is the body of a divine being. One of the things that I've done, and I don't know any other scholar who's done that, Miguel, because it's really a bitch of a job to sort this stuff out. But one of the things I've done is that I've put this information out to the public in as clear a way as possible, and I've said, well, what do you think? What are we going to conclude here? You know, we have a responsibility here today to, to draw a conclusion from this contradictory and conflicting evidence. And so I draw my conclusion, and I make it very, very clear what my conclusion is. I don't ask anybody to follow me as an authority, but I draw my conclusion. And my conclusion is that Gnostics taught that our Earth, that we inhabit, the living biosphere, is actually the body of the divine Sophia, and that the rest of the solar system is formed by the archons and the forces of the demiurge, and that we live in a two, two systems at the same time. We live on Earth connected with Sophia, profoundly connected with her, but at the same time we live in an ambiance that is affected by the demiurge and his archons. And this scenario is, is so important. I've tried so hard to make this clear that we understand the scenario because I believe that it's true and that it, was ex it will be extremely helpful for us to see our place in the cosmos if we could take this on board and understand it. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first half of our thematic show on the Gnostic Sophia. This is where you find wisdom and how to become wise. For the second part, you'll get, yes, the second part of our interview with John Lamb Lash. Then we follow with Tricia McCannon, who will go into the more New Age slash Anunnaki versions of Sophia and the Divine Feminine in general. Based on her book, The Return of Sophia. Lastly, we'll have Barbara Walker on a more general note, focusing on the sociological and anthropological chronicles of the goddess in ancient times. Very second-wave feminist and drawing from her book, Man Made God. Get ready for more hours of robust insights on Hagia Sophia and the goddess herself. 
So please become a member patron at Patreon to get the full sapient dope and to support this red pill cafeteria. Go to, you got it, the God above God dad cam for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact me. I can't do it without you. And if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Archons, just message me and I'll give you any show on the house. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.